0: Go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to go back to Acts chapter 6, verse 1, although I'm going to hold in reading that until I'm a little deeper into the message. Paul was kind enough to uh, skip over this section because I had already done some preparation on this section, and so he moved to verse 8 last week, but we're going to go back and and hit chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And uh, just a reminder that one of the things that we're doing to kind of supplement the series to to give you an opportunity to take a deeper dive into some of the context behind the book of Acts. There's a study going on every other week from 10.30 to 11 by Yaakov Pesher, and you can jump right into that next time. They had it this morning. It'll be two weeks from now. You can jump into that, and you can enjoy a little bit more study on the context of the book of Acts. Title of this morning's message is, When My Church Changes. When My Church changes. And would you join me as we pray and ask God for help? <clears throat> Lord, we want to thank you that as we're here, we are breaking open that which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that today your word would, would divide us, that it would instruct us, that it would help us and that we would magnify your name all the more, not only as a local church, Lord, but as as an individual before you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a question this morning. The, the, The question is, what's the best size for a good church? What's the best size for a good church? Now, if you're tracking the evangelical news at all, you'll know that Mark Driscoll, and that by the way is, is, a, is a man who is a very popular, very recognizable evangelical Christian pastor, lead, led a mega church out in Seattle, Washington. He has resigned his pastorate under questions about his character and leadership. And by the way, when we hear stuff like that, we we grieve and we pray. We pray for the Driscolls, pray for Mars Hill Church. But I bring that up because some people believe that the problem is connected to the size of the church. The thinking is that it's impossible to grow large and not compromise the values that are necessary in order to lead humbly and to pastor people lovingly and to do church effectively. In other words, there is an assumption that size undermines quality. Also in the news is this, the rise of what's called the house church movement. In other words, it's describing how people are fleeing the organizational church, the organized church, for the simplicity of meeting in homes. And a lot of experts say that's a reaction to the megachurches that are populating the Christian landscape. Megachurches, which are seen are kind of top-heavy, consumer-created, p- pragmatic places where, where people really just worship God without the trappings of relationship, without trappings of having to deal one with another. I was reading an article on Friday at my desk from the Huffington Post, titled the article was The Failure of the Megachurch, and uh, the guy that wrote it, whose name was Tim Suttle, said almost exultingly, he said, quote, the megachurch model which was the flavor of the week in church leadership circles for decades, is now beginning to crumble. Remember my original question? What is the best size for a good church? I don't think that question has ever been more relevant than it is in the day in, in which we live. Which is part of the reason why I was so surprised this past week as I read about the promise and honestly, the problems of a church that numbered over 20,000 people. In fact, that number would place it as over maybe the third or the fourth largest church in the United States, that is, if it were in the United States. This church started in a metropolitan area. It was distinguished by its diversity. It It grew not through the Sheep shifting from one congregation to the next congregation, which is so common, particularly in the American church. But this church grew through conversions that were taking place as a result of evangelism. But the report that I read also described some problems that they were encountering. There were growing complaints among different groups within the church. There were charges of favoritism by one group towards another group. It was a church that had programs to support the needy, but those programs weren't working so well. In fact, they were in disarray, and as a result of the lack of organization, people were suffering. It's interesting that the most common critique of the large church is that it's too cold, it's too programmatic, it's too corporate. You know, it is too... Large church is what hate speech is to those who believe that marriage is only between a man and a woman. In other words, it's a standard critique that comes with the territory. But according to this report, this particular church was hardly corporate or programmatic. That wasn't the problem of this church at all. This was a large disorganized church. And if you're curious about the church that I'm talking about or the specifics on this mega church, like its location or how its problems were resolved... Well, let's just go together to Acts chapter 6, and let's read about this local church, beginning in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said... and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus a proselyte of Antioch these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands upon them and the word of god continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and great and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this is describing a very large church very early in Christianity. And what I want to do together is I want to look at some of the lessons that emerge from examining this large church, from just studying it together in the sixth chapter of Acts and see what are some of the the, the first lessons that we glean from life in a large church. So let's look first at number one, that the gospel Instigates change. That's my first point. That's the first lesson that the gospel instigates change. So what we're doing here is we're, we're, we're thinking about the big picture of how chapter six sits with the enti- within the entirety of Acts. Because Acts is a record of what happens when the gospel... By the way, when I say the gospel, I mean the the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What happens when the gospel is unleashed in creation? See, the gospel is presented in Scripture not just as a body of facts, but as a living, active power that is at work in creation, pushing back the effects of sin, pushing back the effects of fallenness. Paul told the Romans that the gospel is, quote, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He told the Corinthians that the word of the cross, which, by the way, is kind of just shorthand for the gospel. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He said to the Colossians of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing See when the when the gospel is described in the New Testament when the gospel is described by Paul it's not this stagnant body of information, but it is presented as something that's almost a separate entity. It's personalized. It's a dynamic, uncontainable force that God has unleashed and released into the world. And the gospel comes upon a person and actually affects the change that it calls for within the person. So if you've ever read or studied the Old Testament at all, you know at times that the prophet would stand up and he would prophesy the word of the Lord. And it would be the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord would come and it could actually produce the change that God wanted because it was the word of the Lord. In the New Testament, the word of the Lord is a person. God became man. And the word of the Lord continued through the Holy Spirit and continues through the announcement of the gospel so that it creates the very thing that it called for. I brought a quote with me by Dwight L. Moody, who once said, quote, The gospel is like a lion. Just open the cage door and get out of the way. So as we're trying to reach people within our communities, we're trying to reach our one life. For the benefit of the guests, one of the goals of this series is to just, rather than focusing the application of the series on the nations, we want to focus first just upon where we live and who we live with and the people that don't know Jesus, that we're interacting with every day. So we're just saying, Lord, give us one life as we study the book of Acts. So as you're focusing on one life, just remember that, it's, that change is going to come, not through the slickness of your presentation, not through delivering them to the right event, but it's going to come by opening the cage door and letting the lion out and seeing the gospel do the work that only the gospel can do. So we come to Acts chapter 6, and we're observing the church in Jerusalem, and we're seeing the Jews and the Hellenists together. Now, the Hellenists is a word that's used here. That simply means the Greek-speaking Jews, and they're all together in the same church for the first time in human history. And what's happening is we're seeing how the gospel is all of a sudden beginning to instigate change among the people of God, and it's pushing these Converted Jews that lived within Jerusalem who spoke Aramaic to begin to accept the Hellenist Jews, those that had come for the Passover and were converted but are from other areas and they speak Greek. It's pushing and pull, it's pulling them together in the context of one fellowship. And so what's going on here is that the boundaries of the Christians are beginning to be stretched out, to being pushed out. Walls of bias that had existed for centuries are beginning to be attacked by the gospel work within them. And this is incredibly important. This is an incredibly important development in understanding the flow of Acts Because as we come into Acts chapter 6, this is not a chapter that's primarily about church growth. It's not primarily about leadership or about widows. It's about how the unconquered gospel breaks beyond the borders as it marches towards The Gentiles, it's 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 what what the book of Acts is about. It's it's about the fulfillment of Jesus's word in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so it's about how the gospel breaks out beyond borders to go forward into the world. And what we begin to see is that. That in order for that to happen, there has to be change among the people of God. That there's a sense where the work of the Spirit is is deconstructing an entire worldview among some of the Jewish believers on on who God is, what values they should live by, on what, what religion really is. And that's happening as God is bringing new and different kind of people into the church. And that's always been the way it was. That's always been the way it is that God begins to change the people of God and stretch their borders as he brings new and different people into the church. And so there's this sense where the gospel creates growth. Growth creates problems. Growth begins to push the leaders to rethink how they're thinking about God, to rethink how they're thinking about what God values, and to begin to think outside of the little box they had for who God was and how he worked. And so they had this problem. Some of the, some of the widows were not being fed. And, and in response to that, they do something that's kind of surprising. They, they appoint these Greek-speaking leaders. So the significance of verse 5 and the names that are written there are that each of those names are, are Greek. So what they're doing is they're reaching beyond the Jerusalem Jews, and they're appointing these, these Greek-speaking leaders so that now the Hellenists have a stake in the leadership of the church. The Hellenists are now owning the church in a whole new way. But the big picture of what's going on is that the church is is all of a sudden, it's, it's flexing, it's adapting, it's changing, because where the gospel goes, change comes. When the gospel arrives, change is here to stay. And you know what? That can be a frightening thing sometimes. Because we don't always like to change. And yet when the gospel comes and does its dynamic work among the people of God, it always brings change. If you don't like the way your life is going, don't worry. Believe the gospel and buckle your seatbelt. Because when the cage door swings open and the lion comes out, you'll be shocked at how quickly you can move down the road. Because the gospel brings change. And, And again, that can be... That can be unsettling for some. Change is something we like to avoid sometimes. We like our life the way it is. But the good news of the gospel is that God, God is always working through change to bring about his good thing in our life. We don't always perceive that it is good, but the gospel is always bringing good even when it's calling us, even when it's challenging us to change. So the first lesson of this from this first large church is that when the gospel comes, the gospel instigates change. Here's lesson number two. As churches grow, needs surface. As churches grow, needs surface. So we we see this kind of interesting progression as Acts is unfolding in that in Acts chapter 2, there wasn't a needy person there. In fact, it went as far to say that they were selling their land and distributing the proceeds as any had need. In Acts chapter 4, it says more specifically, quote, there was not a needy one among them. And then all of a sudden, we smack into Acts chapter 6, and there are needs all over the place. And the the, the Hebrew Jews or the Hellenist uh, Jewish widows, We're not being served food, and they were not being served in the way that they expected and the way that they should have been. And all of a sudden, there are these needs that are taking place. So so two significant developments emerge in Acts chapter 6. There are unmet needs, and the people ain't happy. And so it says they are complaining. The Greek word there literally means murmuring. In other words, the New Testament church is starting to look more and more like church, isn't it? It's starting to look like every other church in the world. And so the disciples call a meeting, an important meeting. In fact, imagine for a second <clears throat> that you were invited to this meeting. You know, you're a member of the church, and you've heard the complaints circulating, and there's a family meeting that's being called, and you too are concerned About the widows, and you know that the ball's been dropped, and you know that the disciples themselves, the apostles, have been serving the widows, and there appears like they're not doing a very good job. And so you go expecting an explanation. You go, in fact, expecting an apology. In fact, you want a written public statement of regret. And here's what you get read verse 2 And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right. That we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It is not right. I mean, the Greek word there is arrestus, it means pleasing to God. It is not pleasing to God for us to serve the widows. Where does that come from? You know, let's not move on too quickly here without imagining the impact of that. Because these are widows. Apart from children, apart from babies, the most vulnerable group within any society. And people are watching the apostles carefully. How will they deal with this? In fact, their their leadership will be measured by how they respond to this. Because it's widows. My dad died years ago. My mom is a widow. One of the things I know is God listens to widows. God pays close attention to them. Everybody pays close attention to them. This is a group of people that were cared for daily by John and Peter and James. But what's happening here in the book of Acts is that we come to a moment where the apostles begin to model what true gospel leadership is going to look like in the New Testament And they determine that we have to be used ourselves in a more strategic way, which does not mean that the widows are not fed, but it means we have to begin to delegate ourselves, delegate some responsibilities that we might give ourselves to a more strategic task. In fact, that we might meet a set of needs that the widows have that they're not even perceptive to. We've got to give ourselves to preaching and the word of God. We have to give ourselves to, to, to serve the widows, but to serve the widows in a different way than everybody else expects that we will. We have to serve them spiritually. We've got to preach the word. We've got to pray for them. You know, it's amazing to me where the, where the apostles throw the accent for how to use their time in the church here in Acts chapter 6. Here in this defining moment of redemptive history... And it makes me wonder, do do I prioritize, do we prioritize our spiritual needs in the same way the apostles did? You know, to the apostles, the most... Important thing they could do for the people of God, the most important thing they could do for the widows was to preach to them. Even more important than feeding them, they wanted to give themselves to a higher goal, to feed the spiritual needs of the widow because preaching the word of God was so important. Is it that important to us? You know, it's no coincidence that the apostles are being pulled between the widows and the word of God. Because both are serious needs within the local church. But the decision they come to is, yes, the widow's physical needs must be satisfied, but not by us. Yes, the widow's needs must be satisfied, but we are called to serve another set of needs that the widows possess. So in the sixth chapter of Acts, we discover that God prioritizes needs a little differently than most of us are tempted to do. You know what, there are, there are probably few words that are more elastic than the word need within our culture. And if we're honest, we would acknowledge that we are a culture that is driven by satisfying our needs. And advertisers recognize this, and advertisers exploit this. It's why we are constantly told that we need a bigger car that we need a better deodorant, that we need pizza, that we need a vacation. Because the vocabulary of need has kind of crept into our language. And in so doing, it's created a kind of subtle exchange where what we want, what we desire is now recast as something that we need. So we no longer say, I want, I I desire. We say, I need a larger home. I need respect from you. I need sex or whatever it might be. And it's confusing because it takes the things that we want and the things that we desire and it recasts it as something that's fundamentally biological. In other words, this is just the way God made me. I just need a vacation home. And of course, if it's biological, then it's natural. And if it's natural, then we're entitled to it because God has constituted us this way. He's created us this way. And so what relationships can end up being is is two people flogging one another because they're not meeting the needs that they think they have. Sometimes this is cast in the world of psychological needs. We need love. We need safety. We need significance. We need security. Deeply felt needs that we believe that we have that are found nowhere in Scripture. And yet we hold each other hostage at times to meeting these needs that we've been convinced by the culture that we have... But God has never declared that we possess them. And when we have unmet needs, we complain. And by the way, I'm not denying the reality of needs. I'm just saying scripture defines that word very narrowly. We, we need food like the widows needed food. We need shelter. We need God. There's, there's a few baseline needs. After that, there's a big drop off. And the reality is that language is just another way that we get what we want. In other words, our needs are nothing more than our desires and our wants and at times our demands masquerading as a need. And if you're here as a parent, you know what I'm talking about because sometimes our kids will present their desires, you know what I mean, as if they are deeply embedded needs that they need for happiness. My kids always needed candy. They never wanted candy. They never desired candy. It was a biological need, and it was impossible to live without that need being satisfied. In fact, their very existence depended upon mom and dad supplying that need. But if we related to that as if it was a legitimate need, we would be sentencing them to the rest of their life obese or... Tooth decay, just in an attempt to meet one need, we're really ruining them. And so it's important to realize that as, as the church unfolds, that this issue of need begins to emerge. And the apostles are thinking biblically and theologically about even how to define a need. And what are the greatest needs? What are the greatest things they need to be given themselves to? Because they realize that leadership identifies real needs. Leadership addresses real needs. Certainly the widows needed food, and they wanted to give themselves to that, but they had to delegate that. And this is their decision, that the leadership will serve the greater needs, the spiritual needs, while delegating the other important needs to other people. So as the church is unfolding in Acts, we're seeing this sense where the church grows and needs surface. And then there's the third, and this is my final point, that as the church grows, methods change. Methods change. So the undercurrent that runs through Acts and is certainly embodied in Acts chapter 6 is can be summarized in a statement that I'm sure you've heard many times, constant change is here to stay. Constant change is here to stay. And we can see that simply in the first six chapters of Acts. Do you remember in in, in the beginning of Acts, there were 120 people gathered, Acts chapter 1. And the Spirit of God is poured out in Acts chapter 2. And Peter preaches, and then 3,000 people were saved. We, we joked about that a little bit. But it didn't end there, because in Acts chapter 4, another 5,000 men were saved. That's not even counting women and the kids in children's ministry. That was just the men. So figure that's another ten to 12,000 people that are saved. And then by Acts chapter 6... That congregation has grown even more. Now, so you can just imagine the complexity that was foisted upon that new body of believers. I mean, some of you know what it's like to add one child to a family, how disorienting it can be, how disruptive it can be. What would it be like to add thousands of people to one congregation in a very short period of time? Well, one of the things that they're finding out is that how they dispensed care for the widows, for instance, had to change. That the apostles had to be repositioned so that the widows could still be fed, but something more important would take place as well. And that is the spiritual needs of the people would be met. And and what we're encountering in Acts chapter chapter 6 is a kind of defining moment where this living, vital, vibrant organism all of a sudden needs to organize itself even more. You know, Abraham Kuyper once called the church an organized organism. And that's what's happening is the church begins to organize itself. See, if your view of of a great church is the idea that people just kind of spontaneously gather, and the Spirit of God moves. And to you, that's the highest form of spirituality. And I want to encourage you, drop into the book of Acts and read some of the things that go on in Acts. Because in Acts, they they knew the specific number of converts, and it was important for Luke to record that. They had money collected. They had meetings organized. They had needs. They were distributing food and distributing money. So so that means that there were systems and organization and procedures and administration and all of those things were viewed to be good and wise and natural. And I think think there's something inside of us that at times can almost feel like that to think in those terms or to talk in those terms is is to move away from the Spirit of God. In fact, there's there's a part of us that can just romanticize the early days of our our Christianity because it was just wonderful to not have to deal with the burdens and challenges and organization that came with a a growth. Wasn't it nice when we didn't have a building to deal with or we didn't have budget problems or we didn't have the kind of problems that come with change and the Spirit of God moving among us. We could feel like, oh, that was just so so pure. We didn't need a website. The Spirit of God would tell us when to meet. The Spirit of God would tell us where to meet. Remember when back in the days when fellowship group lasted an entire week? Nobody wanted to go home the way they want to go home today. Children's ministry, those kids led themselves, changed their own diapers. The Spirit of God was at work in powerful ways. And, and there's part of us, you know, we can kind of well, you know what I'm talking about. We, we can just memorialize the, the simplicity, not realizing that with growth, organization must come. With growth, administration must come. I, I remember being in college and coming to a place where I realized, you know what, I, I can't just keep in my mind the things I need to do. I, I remember like the day where I realized I have to start writing this down. And, that, and there was a sense where that was like I was taking a step forward in growth because I was needing to organize my life because growing up means organizing out. Growth must be ordered because, you know what, if it's not, chaos reigns. If it's not, widows starve. You know, you may be here this morning and per- perhaps perhaps you prefer a kind of meeting where there's a lot less people than what are gathered here today. You know, maybe, maybe it's a smaller church that you prefer, somewhere where you walk in, you see everyone, you know everyone, and maybe you appreciate the informality of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there can be things that are very right with that. I, I think what, what, what we have to do, though, in the way that we look at these things is we have to make sure that we're not moralizing our preferences or over-spiritualizing things that we like and things that we desire about the size of the church or the administration of the church. Because when we move into the New Testament, we see that there were house churches that were like 40 and under, and we see that there were mega churches of 20,000 and over, and at no point do we see the disciples in Acts or Paul in his epistles discouraging growth, or spiritualizing a smaller group of people. And, and by the way, just so you know, if, if, uh, if you've ever met a pastor of a small church, you're not meeting somebody who's praying that the church remains small. You're meeting somebody who behind the scenes is crying out to God, Lord, grow this church. He's praying that the church will grow bigger. Because there's a sense where growth is Biblical doesn't mean that a church is always growing. Sometimes the greatest sign of a church is that it's shrinking because of the way that ministry is taking place. The word is being declared and there can be a refining and a pruning before there's an expansion. So we don't want to deify growth, but there is a sense in general where the pattern of scripture is growth is biblical. Growth is organic. Growth is good. You know, Prior to coming um, down to Tallahassee and being a part of Four Oaks, I only had two church experiences as a Christian. I was five years. Kim and I were five years in a church in in an area. It was a small church. It was about 100 people. And then 27 years in a church in Philadelphia, a large church. And I remember leaving that small church and feeling like, my heart was left in it because we loved that experience. And it was my first church as a believer. You know, I think, there, I think we have attachments to our first church experience because God meets us in such a unique way and establishes us. And there's part of our heart that will always be back at that first church. But I remember that you know it felt like the feeling of belonging would be unique to that small church environment. So I arrived in this larger church thinking, oh, no, it can never be like that. And so we moved to Philadelphia and began to get involved. And I began to notice that the, the opportunities for relationship were pretty much the same I, in this large church as they were in the small church. And I began to realize that there were certain myths that I had about a larger church that God through the grace of His Spirit, was exposing. And, and maybe, maybe you've embraced these myths too. Here was, the, here was one of them. The first myth was that, you know, large churches are such an American thing. You know, everything in America has to be big, doesn't it? We need big houses. We need big Macs. We need big gulps. Even our drinks have to be big. But, but we have to realize that when it comes to church, that, that that very assumption, because it's big, it must be American, that very assumption can be an Americanized way of thinking because there are more large churches outside of the United States than inside of the United States. In fact, if you Googled right now top 20 largest churches in the world, all of them would be outside of the United States. Africa, Asia, Latin America, so that idea of large churches are such an American thing, I realized, okay, that, that, that's not true. Here was another myth. It's just easier to get to know people and to build relationships in a smaller church. So moving from, from our small church to Philadelphia, I began to realize that, that my relational grid, my relational network, what I needed to kickstart relationships was pretty much the same in the large church as it was in the small church. I mean, you might have to connect, you know, you might have to work a little harder in a large church to, to, to connect in, which is why, by the way, we have small groups here. But the point I'm trying to make is that our relational capacity doesn't change with the size of the church. It's not like, you know, we have, in a bigger church, you have a smaller relational capacity. In a smaller church, you have a larger relational capacity. No, I mean... You know, in life, if you've got three or four close friends that you're living life with, you're doing pretty well. And if you're in a smaller church, it's about the same. And so we can't have these assumptions that can make us, you know, that can, can, can make us think we have needs that Scripture says we don't have. And the question that raises is, hey, not, not large or small church, but are we involved in the church? Are we involved in a way that we're building relationships? Here was the last myth: that the, the, the healthy church has a single leader, a single, you know, that dynamic, charismatic, celebrity-type guy who drives the ministry into the future. Well, you know, when I read this text in Acts chapter six, and this is not the only time this emerges, this is all over Acts where we read about the twelve leading together. Or they appoint not one to respond to the problem of the widows, but seven men together. We look at the presence of team ministry in the text. See, the study of Acts shows that God called teams to lead local churches, which is why elders are almost always, I think is one exception, almost always in the plural in the New Testament, because God established elders, plural, to serve the local church, leadership in the New Testament was always shared among some, not simply among one. And then those people that shared leadership would put forward one who was gifted to lead and to organize and to serve and to care. We call that person a lead pastor. That's, that's Pastor Paul and he would provide that, that leadership. And there's a sense where when you have that kind of arrangement that a team protects the church from the tyranny of the, of the celebrity pastor, it, it really it broadens the base of wisdom because the multitude of counselors are always more effective than the genius of one person. And it, it pushes men that are in team to have to apply the things they say they believe because they're walking together. It's not just this one guy who's the celebrity, but, but they're having to be humble. They're growing to be humble because they have to be humble towards one another. They're living in accountability because they're in relationship with one another. By the way, you know, if you want to know if somebody's humble, I mean, if you, know, you want to know if I'm humble, I, I don't think I am humble, but I'm, I'm gr- trying to grow in humility. But if you want to know if I am humble, you, you talk to my wife, talk to my kids, and talk to the team. And those people that are in orbit around us are the best ones to comment on that. And so there's this big shakeup in the Jerusalem church. And all these things are going on where, where, where their needs are being revealed and the church is growing and it's expanding. And, and, and you wonder, well, what's going to happen as a result of all this? Does it, does it implode? Was it some kind of scandal? Did, did the Daily Jerusalem read Widow Gate across the front page the following day? Well, look at, look at verse 7, and this is where we're going we're to end. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith see when when leaders order what god blesses and when the church is flexible to change growth often happens because it's not about size it's not about preferences it's not about roles it's about people finding their place and becoming a church that works together for the glory of God and begins to serve for the glory of God. And, and, and I brought one last quote because saying that reminds me of another church, and I'm going to end with this quote, where in the 1800s, a church named Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was led by a guy named Charles Spurgeon, it was once said of, of Metropolitan Tabernacle, quote, The Metropolitan Tabernacle was not, as some have assumed, merely a highly popular preaching center. The Tabernacle was a great working church. It wasn't that it was large or small. It wasn't that everybody's needs were being met. It's that it was a great working church. And as I read Acts chapter 6 and I think about us and I think about what God wants to do among us. My my prayers, may God help us not to aim for being big, not to aim for being a popular preaching center, but just quite simply to be a great working church for the glory of God. Let's pray.